thank you, band, for leading us and for reminding us of those truths of who God is, that, that he's the one who uh, can, can turn graves into gardens, can turn bones into armies, that he's the God who can make a way for us wherever we are. And so wherever you come in today, whatever is going on in your life, he's the God who wants to meet you right where you are today. And so thank you, band, for reminding us of that. Thank you guys for being here. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, thank you for joining us. And I want to say this, wherever you are in your faith journey, thank you for joining us. Whether you're a follower of Jesus, whether you're just exploring Christianity for the first time and asking some questions, whether you're skeptical of it, um, we're thankful that you're here, you're here. And one of our hopes for Christ Community Church is that this would be a place where it's safe to explore the honest questions of life, of faith, of the claims of Jesus. And that's why I'm really excited about this new series that we're starting today. Because we're about to start a new series called Encountering the Real Jesus. Encountering the real Jesus. Who is the real Jesus? And what does it look like when we encounter him? What does it look like when we meet him as he really is? The truth is, everybody in our society has some ideas about Jesus. Even if you don't give it a whole lot of thought, even if you don't consider yourself religious, everyone in the Western world has been profoundly impacted by some ideas about Jesus of Nazareth. Like every year, like clockwork, you look at Time Magazine or, or Newsweek or the History Channel, they'll run this story asking the question, who was Jesus really? You log on to Facebook and people throw up all these memes about Jesus. Uh, if you've ever seen the cinematic masterpiece, Talladega Nights, uh, you know that, that Cal Naughton Jr. likes to think of Jesus as a figure skater. And Ricky Bobby likes to pray to the eight pound, six ounce baby Jesus with his golden fleece diapers and his long flowing hair. Even if you don't consider yourself, even if all you think of is Jesus Christ as a curse word, you can't escape Jesus. He's everywhere. He is simply the most influential man who ever lived. Tom Holland is a historian of the ancient world. He's absolutely brilliant. I mean, he traces this out in his fascinating book. It's called Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. One of the best books I've read in the past year. And he says that the emergence of Christianity is, quote, the single most important development in Western history. And it's not just true for religious people. That's true for someone like Tom Holland, who's agnostic when it comes to faith. And over 600 pages plus, he, he builds this case that the things that we take for granted, so like the idea of human rights, of, of the dignity and justice for all people, things like hospitals and social safety nets and charity and freedom of religion and the rise of modern science, the abolition movement, the civil rights movement, even the freedom to not be a Christian, the freedom to be a Muslim or a Jew or a Buddhist or an atheist or wherever you find yourself, they can actually all be traced back to the revolution that this one started. That's true of really good things in our world, but we also got to be honest there have been a lot of awful things that have been done in the name of Jesus as well. The Crusades, bigotry and racism and all sorts of oppression. And, and people still try to do it today. People still invoke the name of Jesus for all sorts of mutually contradictory things. 
And so that's why we're going back to the gospel of Mark. Over, I don't know, it might take us a few months. It might take us a year. I don't know. But we're going to go back to the gospel of Mark, and we're going to see who Jesus is. We want to know who he is and what it looks like to encounter him. Not because we don't know anything about Jesus, but because we all think we do know about Jesus. And we need to go back and see if our conceptions of Jesus actually line up with reality. Jesus of Nazareth is the most influential man who ever lived, yet he never wrote a book, never held a political office. We don't even know what he looked like. Billions of people have claimed to worship him. Billions of people have even claimed to know him personally. And so what do we do with that? Is it really possible to know Jesus? Is it possible to know who he is? And is it possible to know him personally? And the gospel of Mark that we're going to be looking at was written to answer those questions. Now, what's the gospel of Mark? Or or more accurately, the gospel according to Mark. Simply put, the gospel according to Mark is the earliest biography we have of Jesus of Nazareth. No copyright page on it, um, so we're not 100% sure when it was written, but most likely it was written in the late 50s AD. So 20 to 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. In the ancient world, it was a very oral culture, so, so they would pass down history by word of mouth. And the message of Jesus has been passed down over these 20 to 30 years. From what we can tell, Mark is the first person to actually try to write down a coherent biography of Jesus. Now, who's Mark? Mark, if you've heard of St. Peter or the Apostle Peter, Mark was the personal assistant to the Apostle Peter. One of Jesus' earliest followers. And, And most scholars believe that Mark is writing down Peter's memories of Jesus. And it makes sense if you read this gospel, because Mark includes information that only Peter could have known. And since Peter probably didn't know how to write Greek, and because Greek was the language used by most of the world at that time, Mark kind of takes Peter's memories of Jesus, and he writes down stories that they can continue after Peter dies. And so what that means is that what you have in the gospel of Mark is the earliest biography of Jesus, passed down from someone who knew Jesus personally. I figure if you want to know who the real Jesus is and what it means to encounter him, then this seems like a pretty good place to start. So let's jump in. Let's see what we can find out about Jesus. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. So he has a very unique fashion sense and a very unique diet. We're going to get back to that. And and he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So Mark doesn't waste any time. Like, right out of the gate, he tells us what he thinks about Jesus. And he actually spends the rest of the book of Mark trying to unpack that. So there are three things, just in this short little section, three things that Mark tells us about Jesus. He tells us that Jesus is a historical person, Jesus is a world-changing person, and Jesus is a life-changing person. 
A historical person, a world-changing person, and a life-changing person. First, a historical person. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, you've heard that there are four Gospels, right? Four biographies of Jesus, written by four different followers of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And these four authors are kind of telling the Jesus story from four different angles. It's like when you watch a football game today, you're going to see that there's all these different camera angles so that you can see everything going on in the field. That's kind of what you have here with, the, with the, all the Gospels of Jesus. They're telling the Jesus story from different angles. And that's really helpful because it gives us a fuller picture of who Jesus is. Instead of just one perspective, we get four perspectives that kind of fill out the story. But all of these gospels, all of these biographies of Jesus have one thing in common. They were all written as historical biographies. Sometimes you'll, you'll hear people say that, that the gospels are myths, that they're kind of legends that developed over time, and they, they kind of teach us timeless truths about the universe. The problem is that when you actually read them for yourself, that's not what they are. The Gospels talk about Jesus being born in a particular historical time and place and living in a particular historical time and place and dying in a particular historical time and place and rising from the dead in a particular historical time and place. And if you've ever read any ancient myths, you know that that's not the way myths work. The Gospels are claiming that these things actually happened in history. Now, you can choose to reject those claims, but you got to wrestle with the actual claims that they're making. And what is so unique about the Gospels in the New Testament is how early they were written. All four Gospels were written during the lifetime of people who knew Jesus personally. We do not have that kind of historical data for any other ancient person. We don't have it for Alexander the Great. We don't have it for Julius Caesar. We don't have that kind of historical data for any other person in the ancient world who ever lived. Mark was written 20 to 30 years after Jesus died on the cross. So if Mark had just been making stuff up, there were people around who knew Jesus personally who could have debunked the whole thing. It's a fascinating verse at the end of the Gospel of Mark. It's this, we'll probably get there in like three years at this rate. But this fascinating verse at the end of the Gospel of Mark, it's in this section where Jesus is talking about the crucifixion. Or Mark is talking about the crucifixion of Jesus. And he says this, Mark 15, 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. That's kind of strange. Like, why does Mark get so specific with the names here? Why does he name this guy Simon of Cyrene? Why does he talk about Alexander and Rufus? It's, it's almost like the people who are reading this are supposed to know who Alexander and Rufus were. That's probably because they did. Probably, most likely, Rufus and Alexander were actually part of the church in Rome, which is where Mark was when he wrote this biography. And he's saying, hey, you can go and ask these guys. They were there. You, you can check it out and make sure that I'm saying the truth. This is, this is kind of like the ancient version of footnotes. And Mark's saying, I've done my research. I'm telling the truth. If you don't believe me, here's these other people who were there, and you can go and ask them. And here's the point of that. Christianity is a historical faith. It makes historical claims about Jesus of Nazareth. Now, if those claims are false, the whole thing is ridiculous and worthless and utterly useless. But if those claims are true, this changes everything. That's the second thing you see about Jesus. Not only is he a historical person, he's a world-changing person. A world-changing person. Look how Mark starts this biography, Mark 1.1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
Now, the word gospel literally means good news. Good news. But, but not just any kind of good news. So, like, in my opinion, if this, I know I have some Steelers fans here, but if the Bills beat the Steelers today, that'll be good news. But it won't be gospel. In the ancient world, the, world, the word gospel was used for world-changing, history-changing good news. If you've ever seen footage of the celebrations in Times Square at the end of World War II, it's kind of that idea. I've got a picture of it right here. The word comes out that, that war is over and people just flood into the streets, hugging random people. There's that famous, that famous picture of the sailor kissing that, kissing that nurse in Times Square. Just random people hugging each other and celebrating and erupting into joy and applause because it's this kind of news that the enemy has been defeated. War is over, and this changes everything. And what we need to understand up front is that Christianity is first and foremost good news. It's not good advice, not good morality, not good tips for living, not good chicken soup for your soul, good news. It's news about something that God has done for us in history. And it's not just news, it's good news. It's the kind of news that makes you run into the street and sing and dance and shout for joy. And here's why it's good news. Because it's not about you. It's not about you. It's not the good news of Josh. It's not the good news of Andrew. It's not the good news of Barb. It's not the good news of any of us. It's the good news of Jesus. It, it's not about your attempts to save yourself and become a better person. It's not about you getting your act together and trying to make God accept you. It's not about what you do for God. It's about what God has done for you. It's the good news, he says, of Jesus. He is the center. That's why we're looking at this gospel together, because we have this tendency to move Jesus out of the center. Over time, there's almost this centrifugal force that moves Jesus to the margin of our lives. Like, even if you've been a Christian for decades, you tend to lose sight of Jesus. We get sidetracked by other things. But Jesus... Who he is and what he has done for us, he is what makes this gospel good news. And look who Jesus is. Again, verse 1. I promise we're eventually going to move past verse 1. But verse 1, it's so full of meaning. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus. Who? Jesus who? Jesus the Christ. Yeah. We've said this before. Christ wasn't Jesus' last name. His parents weren't Mary and Joseph Christ. He didn't own Christ carpentry business. Christ was not his name. Christ is a title. Christ is, it's the Greek form of the Hebrew word Messiah. And it means God's anointed king. The one who's been anointed as the king. The one, the one who's going to bring the kingdom of, of God to, to humanity. The one who's going to bring heaven to earth. He's Jesus the Christ. Jesus the king. And then he goes further the son of God, the son of God. Now that's kind of puzzling to us, right? As modern Westerners, someone be the son of God, but it actually wasn't odd in the ancient world. In fact, in the Roman empire, if you were reading this for the first time in say 60 AD, and you read this for the first time, you've heard this before. There was already a very well-known person who claimed to be the son of God, Caesar, the emperor, 
He was considered to be the son of God. I want to show you something. Um, this is an inscription that has been found in, um, in Western Turkey. So it was found probably almost 100 years ago now, but it was most likely produced right around 9 BC. So a few years before the birth of Christ. And, and it's in Greek, so and probably, you know, so it's not like you're, you're going to read it right off of there, but you can go online and you can read the translation of this inscription. It's called the calendar inscription, but the title of what it's talking about at the very top is called the gospel of Caesar Augustus. The gospel of Caesar Augustus, and it goes on to tell the story of Augustus, and the, the inscription says that he's a god, that he's the son of the gods. It uses the word savior, that he is the savior of the world who has come to bring a new era of peace and order to humanity. That's what Mark's original readers would have thought of. That's what they would have been reminded of when they read what Mark says here, that it's the gospel of the Son of God. What Mark does here is so punk rock. He basically takes, with one phrase, he subverts the whole establishment of the Roman Empire. The idea that a man who was crucified on a Roman cross could be the anointed king was absolutely scandalous in the ancient world. To Jewish people, crucifixion was a sign of God's curse. To the Romans, crucifixion was so disgusting that only slaves and the very worst in society could be crucified. The greatness of Caesar was his power to crucify other people. The greatness of Jesus was his power to be crucified for other people. The greatness of Caesar was that he punished people for their rebellion. The greatness of Jesus was that he was punished for our rebellion. He suffered in our place for our sins to bring us into the kingdom of God. And that revolution turned the world upside down. As modern Westerners, we tend to think that Christianity is just this nice, safe, respectable, middle-of-the-road religion. The ancient world, it was radically subversive. It was utterly revolutionary. And sometimes we lose sight of that, especially if you've been in the church for a while. And one of my hopes as we go through the gospel of Mark is that we would see how subversive and how revolutionary Jesus is, that we would encounter the real Jesus and that we would see how we want to turn our lives and our world upside down. Mark's saying here, you, you, you think the Caesar is powerful? I'm gonna show you what true power looks like. You think the emperor is the one who has come to bring salvation to the world? I'm going to tell you the good news about the king who has come to truly set you free. I'm going to tell you the good news of a king who didn't come to take from you, but came to give to you. Not, not the king who wants to take your life on the cross, but the one who came to take your place on the cross, to die in your place and rise again to give you life. I'm going to tell you the good news of the king who came to serve who gave up his divine rights and his divine privilege and gave up his very life so that you could truly live. Now that is good news. And see, the fact is, friends, everyone is looking for a savior. Every one of us knows deep down there is something deeply wrong in the world. There is something deeply wrong in the world out there and there is something deeply wrong in my world and we long desperately to see it made right. And we all believe some gospel. We all believe some story of good news. Even if you don't consider yourself religious, you believe some story of good news that tells us how things can be made right. 
And you can say that you believe in Jesus. You can say that Jesus is your savior, that he's the Christ, that he's the son of God. But functionally, you can be placing your faith in other saviors and other gospels. Some of us are like the ancient Romans. We're we're looking for a political savior, someone who will fix what's wrong in the world. Someone who will restore us to greatness, who will take care of people like us. We believe the gospel of political power. Some of us are looking for a financial savior. If I can make this much money, if I can save this money, if I can afford this standard of living, then I'll be happy. Then I'll be fulfilled. Then my world will be all right. Some of us are looking for a relational savior. If I can find my soulmate, I'll be complete. If I can just get married, if I can just get divorced, if I can just be with someone else. And, and, and we don't just do this with romantic relationships. It could be any kind of relationship. And we load people down with these impossible expectations. And we expect them to be our savior. And we crush them under the weight of those impossible expectations. And then when they disappoint us, we're crushed. So let me ask you to be honest with yourself today. What are you trusting in? What gospel, what story of news are you believing? What's your functional savior? Mark says, I'm going to tell you the good news of the only God who's God enough to save you. Verse 2. We finally got past verse 1. Here it is, verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. So here's what's happening in these verses. Um, Mark didn't make this up. He's quoting the ancient Hebrew prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40. You can go back and and read it sometime. But it's interesting. If you look at what Isaiah is talking about in in this prophecy, he's not just talking about a human king coming and bringing salvation. He's talking about the Lord. He's talking about God Almighty, the one who spoke the universe into existence. And Mark takes this ancient prophecy and he applies it to Jesus. He says, God himself has stepped into our world. God himself has broken into human history. God himself has come to rescue his people. God himself has come to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Man, we try so many different things to save ourselves. We have so many self-salvation schemes, politics, economics, science, technology, even religion. And and none of those things are wrong in and of themselves, but they don't offer the kind of deep change that we need at the core of our beings. That's why Jesus didn't just have to be a historical person. And he didn't just have to be a world-changing person. He had to be a life-changing person. He's a life-changing person. See, Jesus came to change the world by changing people. And he didn't just come to change us outwardly, He came to change us in the core of our being. Verse four, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. So John, uh, you might know him, is typically called John the Baptist or, or John the Baptizer. And he's this wild-eyed prophet living out in the desert. He's wearing strange camel hair and the leather belt that was kind of the the uniform of a prophet. And he's eating weird things, living out there in the desert. And he's telling people to get ready. 
He's telling people, turn from your sin and get ready because the kingdom of God is coming. And people are flocking to him to hear what he has to say. And look what he says, verse 7. And he preached, saying, after me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. He said, someone's coming after me. I, I'm, not, I'm not the main event here. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just the opening act. The headliner is coming. I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Savior. I'm not the one you're waiting for. I'm just a messenger telling you to prepare for the coming of the Lord. God himself is about to break in. Says he was preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins. What, what that means is he's saying, stop trying to be the king of your own life and trust the king who is coming to give you life. He called people to change their lives, and yet John knew, I can only go so far. And, and if people are going to get the deep change, the life-giving change inside of them that they need, then someone else is going to have to come and make that happen. And he says that person is coming. Verse 8, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The word baptize literally means to immerse. When, when Rebecca was baptized a couple of months ago, she was immersed in the water. And John says, I've baptized you with water. I've immersed you in water. But one is coming who's going to immerse you with the Holy Spirit. He's going to immerse you in the life-giving power and presence of God. The very presence of God is going to come live inside of you. And he's the one who's going to turn graves into gardens. He's the one who's going to turn bones into armies. He is the only one who can. See, Jesus is not just a historical person. He's not just a world-changing person. He's a life-changing person. He's not just someone to know about. He's someone to know. He's someone to know personally. That's why he died and rose again. He died in a place so that our sins could be forgiven. So that our attempts to be our own gods could be forgiven and we could come into the, into the kingdom of God, into the family of God. So that we wouldn't have to live under guilt and shame and condemnation so that our sins would no longer separate us from God so that we could know God personally. We have all tried to be our own saviors. We've all tried to be our own kings. We've all tried to be our own gods. We've all turned our backs on God and his kingdom. But God refused to give up on us. God came after us. And for some of you today, maybe God is coming after you. God came after us. He stepped into our world to save us and to bring us back to himself. That's why Jesus died and rose again. And that's why after Jesus died and rose again, he sent his spirit to live inside of his followers. Because he wants us to know him personally. Because even though he's physically not here right now, he is still present with us by his spirit. And that's ultimately why he's the most influential man who ever lived. Because millions, maybe even billions of people over the past 2,000 years have known him personally. And he wants you to know him personally as well. Now I realize for some of us in this room, that probably sounds strange. That, that sounds really weird, this idea of knowing Jesus of Nazareth personally. And so, so for you, I just want to encourage you to hang with us as we walk through the gospel of Mark. Because that's the, that's the main point of what Mark is saying here. This, this is not just a, a biography about who Jesus is, but it's also about what it means to meet him and to know him and to encounter him. He's the one you were created for, and he wants you to know him. 
So for some of us in this room, that sounds really new and maybe a little bit strange. For some of us, it sounds really familiar. As a matter of fact, it sounds too familiar. We've trafficked in religious jargon. We've been around the church maybe for so long that we think we already know who Jesus is. We think we already know what it means to encounter him. And I want to invite you, along with myself, to come back to the scriptures with fresh eyes. And Jesus, again, let him shock you, let him puzzle you, let him infuriate you at times, let him amaze you, let him blow your mind all over again. Let him turn your life and your world upside down. He's the one who came to give you the life you were created for. And so I don't know where you are on your journey. I don't even know what the next step on that journey looks like for you. Maybe for you, that means I got to start asking some questions about what I believe and why I believe it. Maybe for you, it's as, it's as simple as, as reading the gospel of Mark, exploring the claims of Jesus for yourself. If you don't have a, a copy of the scriptures, we'd love to give you one. You can find one on your phone. You can find one at any bookstore. But, but maybe for you, it's just, I got to explore this for myself. Maybe, maybe for you, you believe in Jesus, but you've never gone public with your faith through baptism. And, and, and it's time for you to do that. Maybe you need to be honest about some of those false gospels and those false saviors that you've been trusting in. And you just need to come to God honestly. Look, he already knows about it. You don't have to hide it from him. And you just need to come to him honestly and confess that to him and receive his forgiveness. He promises that he will always forgive us if we come to him through Christ. Maybe you're just looking for some deep change in your life. You're like, man, there's this thing that I can't seem to, to conquer this anger inside of me. I can't seem to conquer this lust inside of me. I can't seem to conquer this self-righteousness inside of me or this greed or whatever it looks like. And maybe for you, you just need to come and you just need to ask him for help. And he promises to help you. He promises that he will send his spirit to live inside of you and give you the deep life-giving change that you need in the core of your being. So I don't know where you are today, but the good news is that Jesus knows right where you are. And so as we move into this time of worship, just, just take some time to be honest with him. You don't need to hide. You don't need to pretend. You don't need to posture. You don't need to play religious games. Be honest with him. Ask him to show you who he is. You might even be praying, God, I don't even know if you're there, but if you're there, show me. And just, and just ask him to show himself to you. And then just respond however he leads you. I'll be up front here if you want someone to pray with, uh, if, if you've got any questions. All right, let's pray, and uh, then we'll move into our time of, of closing worship. Father, thank you. Thank you that we can call you Father. Even though we were enemies of you, even though we decided to flip you the bird and turn our backs on you, and we decided we wanted to be our own kings and our own gods, and we decided that we knew better than you, and we've looked for all these other saviors, and we've tried to, to live life on our terms and to live for our own kingdoms. And Father, thank you that you didn't give up on us. You came after us. God himself stepped in. You sent your son to be born at a particular historical time and place. Not just, not just a story about him, but you actually took on flesh and stepped into our world. And Jesus, you were born and you lived and you died and rose again to bring us to yourself. So thank you that that's a possibility. Thank you that you have 
that you have opened up the family of God to us, to bring us in. Thank you that it's not about us. It's not about our morality. It's not about our goodness. It's not about our success. It's not about our religious performance. It's not about us. It's about Christ, his death and resurrection. So thank you, Father, for sending your son to bring us into your family. Thank you for sending the spirit to live inside of us so that we can, we can know you personally. And Father, I don't know where everybody is in this room. I don't know what the next step looks like for everybody, but I pray that you would impress that on us right now. That maybe some of us need to ask some questions we've never asked before. Maybe some of us need to go back to questions we asked a long time ago and we need to, to revisit them. Maybe for some of us, we, we just need to come back and we need to encounter Jesus again. And so I pray that that would be a reality for us. God, I thank you that you promised to be with us wherever we are and that you, that Jesus, you, you came and you died and you rose again to bring us to yourself. And so pray that uh, as we move into this time of worship, help us to be reminded of your goodness. Help us to be reminded of the good news of your life, death, and resurrection. I pray that just as that good news turned the world upside down, I pray that it would turn our world worlds upside down in the very best ways. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Man, that's the good news that we're talking about. It changes everything. Even in our darkness, God comes after us. Even, even no matter, even in, even in being dead in the ground, God comes after us. He raises us to new life. And so uh, if you've got questions about that, maybe it's like, hey, I, I don't know what it is to experience that. Um, next is our key verse, I believe. So every week, if you're new, every week we have uh, a key verse and we try to memorize it together. We try to think about it. It's usually a key verse that kind of unfolds everything else that we've been talking about. And it's, it's this first verse of the gospel of Mark, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the son of God. So a simple verse to remember, but let me just encourage you to take it with you this week and remember some of the things we talked about. Remember what Mark is saying here, what the gospel is, who Jesus is, the Christ, the son of God, and let it move you to, to worship him, to ask questions about him, to follow him uh, this week. All right, I'm gonna send you out with our benediction. Uh, benediction is just a word of blessing, a good word for the road. Let's stand and receive this. This is from Romans chapter 15. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Peace be with you. Have a great week.